0: Tony. And this is what did we miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Hey. Oh, hey Matt. Um so this episode will come out um sometime at the end of May, correct?
1: Uh I believe it'll be the first episode of June actually. Oh,
0: wow. Um well, a- as of this recording, we're still uh recording separately uh because of the coronavirus. Um, which is still a little weird, um, but hopefully by the time this comes out, uh, we'll be we'll we will have resumed our normal lives.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the hope. <laughs> it's um, uh, things have been moving so fast and uh, to such a scary degree so quickly that it is really hard to imagine. I mean, we're at the end of March right now, so what things are going to look like? Um, two months, two months in a week from now, it's um, it's kind of um, frightening to think about. Um, you want to be optimistic, but uh, I think a lot of us are just kind of taking it one day at a time for now.
0: It's really strange, uh, and it's kind of strange talking, um, independently of each other. I just listened to our doom episode uh, as it went up, and I, you could tell that we were in the room together. Um, so when we're recording separately, it is a little stranger, but you know, we got to do what we got
1: to do, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, uh, you know, I try to go for walks. Uh, I've been working from home and, uh, you know, you see a neighbor coming down the sidewalk and normally you'd be like, Oh, cool. It's so-and-so, we'll, you know, we'll chat for a minute. And now, um, it's sort of like Which one of us is going to walk across the street to the other side first?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, if our future selves are listening to this, uh, hopefully they're in a better place. um, And everyone's doing much better. But um, anyway, uh, it's strange, again, uh, talking independently. But we are joined by a special guest today. uh, And that is Jeff Ferrara from the Game Sharks podcast. He also happens to be my brother, uh, so uh, thanks for coming on, Jeff. Hello there. Thank you for
1: having me. I like that you say. I like that you say he happens to be your brother, as if we booked a guest and by coincidence it was your brother.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what happened because uh, you were listening to his podcast, and um, on his podcast they cover uh, video games, video game news. Uh, Current video games, old video games, all video game related things. And they happen to be talking about games that influenced them or were um, maybe games that have lingered in their consciousness throughout their lives or they've come back to uh, time and again. And that inspired you to say, we should uh, have Jeff on and do an episode about one of your childhood favorites.
1: Yeah, um, Jeff. Actually, before we get to that, why don't you tell us a bit more about your show and and what you guys are doing over there, and um, and then we can talk a bit about that particular episode, and then get into what we're talking about here today.
2: Sure. Uh, so we have a podcast called the game sharks podcast. It's me and my friends that we kind of cycle out depending on based on what we're talking about at any given week. Uh, yeah. And we just talk about video games and all the things that we enjoy about them. And yeah, it's just kind of a project that I started to start doing because, uh, I've always wanted to kind of do more with my enjoyment of video games as opposed to just playing them. I want to talk about them with my friends and write articles and discussion pieces about them and stuff like that. So this is kind of my push. 2020 was my year. I decided, all right, I'm going to start putting more effort into making, uh, things related to video games and kind of putting my love of them out there into the great, great internet, Um, and that episode in particular, the idea of it was kind of, yeah, like Matt said, we're going to take a list. I think we all came up with three in particular things or games that were very influential to us and kind of games that made us fall in love with video games. And they ranged from so many different types of things. For me, I had a Game Boy Advance game on there. Um, what is it? I have it down there. I think I had a Game Boy game.
1: Oh, which, which games in particular?
2: So, my three, if I recall correctly, were, I believe, Pokemon Red for the Game Boy, which is kind of my first game that I ever played as a kid um, by myself. It was, I got my own Game Boy Pocket, which was the step between the big gray brick Game Boy and the Game Boy Color, Uh, and my parents gave me Pokemon Red, and I had to have been five or six at the time, and this was the first one that was all mine. No one, I didn't have to borrow it with anyone or share it with anyone because uh, we had, growing up, Matt and I had, and our sisters, had consoles such as the N64 uh, that we had to all share together. But this was my first one that was my own and I fell in love with it and I brought it with me everywhere and I have vivid memories of hiding behind chairs at our grandparents' house and playing Pokemon. Um, so that was the first one. The second one was Final Fantasy seven, which is the game that really got me hooked into Long, big, sprawling JRPG type games. Uh, Still to this day, I consider Final Fantasy VII to be my favorite game of all time. And with the remake on the horizon, just two weeks away from when we're recording this, I'm very excited about that. Uh, And then my third game was Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, which, while technically a Final Fantasy game, is a very different type of game. It's more of, um, they call it a tactics game where it's basically a big chessboard, and your characters are all the pieces and they all can move different ways and use different abilities. So it's just very, very intense chess kind of is the simplest way to put it. Um, and that was on the game Boy advance. So yeah, it kind of spanned all sorts of different games. I had one friend who talked about an army sim PC game that he used to play when he was a kid. Uh, one of our, was friends, that the kid?
1: Was that, was that the guy who mentioned Delta force? Yeah, that was my buddy, Derek.
2: <laughs> He he probably has the deepest uh pool and kind of the widest net out of all of us of games that he's played and he's all over the place he grew up with a gaming PC which the rest of us didn't so he he had some really weird picks that threw us for a loop but it was really fun. I think one of them was a web browser game where you ski down a hill as a yeti
1: or something like that. <laughs> Wait, uh did he was it Ski Free?
2: I think that was it and I looked that up was, a picture um, of
1: it. And I never yeah, heard of that, it before. That was a free game that like came with your came with windows like solitaire or um, free mm-hmm. cell and yeah you just ski down and sometimes but not always this like stick figure yeti just runs out and eats your guy yep um, that was the but it game. was, but it was um the the um the hope that that would happen uh made that something i put uh probably an embarrassing amount of time into um it was a good time killer and um i like so, those three picks that you mentioned, um, I think Final Fantasy VII is the only Final Fantasy I've finished to completion. Um, I want to like Final Fantasy Tactics. I owned Tactics Advance and the original Tactics. Um, and I just, my brain just isn't wired for that type of game. Um, and I was recently on a podcast um, that featured a bunch of like, Um, High school, um, STEAM, like science, technology, engineering, arts, and math students. Um, And I mentioned Pokemon offhand, and they asked me which Pokemon was my favorite. And because Bulbasaur was the first one I picked, I said Bulbasaur. And um, a dozen teenagers booed me on their podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, In a turn of events, Bulbasaur seems to be the most hated out of the original three starters. So (laughs) it's kind of a common... Why? Uh, cause he's objectively seen as the weakest when you play that game. Uh, he's the grass type and everyone thinks Charmander is the coolest just cause he's a fire lizard and I guess that's inherently cool and Charmander is inherently strong against Bulbasaur, therefore Bulbasaur is lame because Charmander statistically is better than him. And then there's Squirtle in the middle and the, the real cool kids pick Squirtle as their favorite. That's just how it works.
1: Right. But I mean, it's all rock, paper, scissors, so, uh... Any one of them is going to be stronger than one of the other ones, right?
2: Yeah, but only one of them's tail is on fire and turns into a dragon thing. <laughs> At least right? Th-
1: You're okay. True.
2: That's what I was Flawless told as a logic. kid.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff, on your show, you do um, this thing called the game, um, like game club, right? Like a book club. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, it's kind of a working title. I still don't know
2: if I want to call it the video game book club or the video game club. I don't know. It's up in the air, but it's basically what you guys do here Um, or in similar to like Oprah's book club where we would all pick a game. And the rule is that only one of us have one of us or less has played the game and we all play through it. And then however long it takes us for all us all to beat it. We get together on the next episode, and then we talk about it and kind of how we felt about playing through this game for the first time, how it holds up today, because a lot of them tend to be older games. Uh, So far for that, we've done Earthbound, Super Metroid, and the episode... We're hopefully recording in two weeks, and the game we're playing right now is Castlevania Symphony of the
1: Night. Wow. Earthbound's another one. I think I've started that game like five or six times, and I just can't stick with it. Um, How did you find that? Was this your first time playing through it for the podcast?
2: Yeah, that was my first time ever playing Earthbound. Um, Andrew was the one who put it. We have like a pool of... Uh, games that we pull from out of a hat he had put that in there and it's one of his favorite games of all time he has two that he claims are his favorite and this is one of them so uh, he was really excited for us to all play it because it's not a very popular game not a lot of people at least in North America have ever played it Um, and yeah it was very strange the humor and kind of the aesthetic of it all (laughs) the humor and the aesthetics of it all are kind of rooted in child's play and being a kid roaming around cities and yeah it's very strange uh your weapons are yo-yos and baseball bats you fight a giant pile of garbage that burps and aliens that come from space but also there's uh, what's the enemy called it's like a rugged hippie or something like that is one of the enemies you fight it's very weird but it was fun
1: yeah from what i've played i also got the impression i was like oh this almost feels like what um Japanese people must think like stereotypical American life is like because there's a greasers in it too and a lot of kind of weird um, pop culture seeming references that all kind of jumble together to make this kind of odd role-playing game.
0: I think maybe that's part of the appeal because I started playing it the other day based off of um, the conversation you had on your podcast, Jeff, about the game because it sounded interesting to me. And I only got to play about 40 minutes so far. And it was really funny uh, and in really weird ways. Um, so I, I, I guess that's part of the appeal. But I, I didn't get too far in it. I mean, even
2: in those first, well, you said 40 minutes, there's some pretty great stuff comedic wise, like the, the bug that comes from the future to tell you that you have to save the world, but then your neighbor's mom crushes it with her foot. Or something along those lines. Yeah, and, and as he's dying, he's explaining this prophecy to you, and then at the end of him explaining it to you, he like mumbles, "Do you want me to say that again?" <laughs> as like his <laughs> as his like dying words, it's just really funny and silly stuff like that is littered throughout the whole game.
0: So, as a video game fan, how important is it to you to kind of go back and discover old games for yourself? Up until recently, I didn't
2: really care for it i just kind of played whatever the new big games were and even at that length i was only playing the ones that i knew that were going to be interesting to me mostly sequels to things that were already proven something like uh legend of zelda or the mario series you know um but recently i've started and that's part of why i wanted to start my podcast and logging every single video game i play and writing my thoughts down about it is because i want to explore the genre more than I have or the medium more than I already have and go and revisit old games that I've never played before that people say are really amazing and really influential and you can see the roots of certain games from these games in the past that people claim to be some of the greatest of all time. And even newer games that are coming out, um like you guys talking about Doom on the episode that just came out uh this past week and my buddy Derek on the podcast is also a big fan of Doom you guys talking about it made me want to get the new Doom game, so I'm planning on downloading that soon. And same thing with Animal Crossing. I had no interest in ever playing an Animal Crossing game, but because my buddy Derek talked it up to me so much, I decided, okay, I'll get this new Animal Crossing game and give it a shot. And now I'm pretty hooked on it. So I feel like I'm now exploring games more than I ever have, and it's definitely... It's really cool to kind of see how different everything can be and i don't like everything that i play that's new or old some there's some things um that i play that i just don't feel really works super well um but for the most part everything that i've been playing is i can at least appreciate which um i think is really what it comes down to is being able to appreciate what it's trying to do and how it advances video games as a whole
0: that's great we talk about that stuff all the time on our show about kind of approaching things from the perspective of, well, what do other people see in this game, and not necessarily from a place of having your guard up or being cynical about it. But that's all a roundabout way to to to, um, to get to the subject of today's episode, which is Sam and Max hit the road, and that is a favorite of Tony's. So why don't you why don't you explain to us, Tony, why this game?
1: Sure. So, um, uh, you know, for me, if, if I were, you know, going back to that episode, Jeff of your show, where you talked about the games that were influential to you, um, and thinking what my top three would be, I know that one of those three slots would have to belong to any number of the point and click adventure games that LucasArts put out in the early nineties. Um, and judging by, uh, or assuming based on your age and then from conversations I've had with Matt, I figured that uh, n- neither of you had played any of them. So the games I'm talking about are uh, the first three Monkey Island games, um, Sam and Max Hit the Road, which we're talking about today, Full Throttle, um, Grim Fandango, uh, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Um, these were really the um, the first PC games that I remember Uh, really playing and loving when my family got a computer. Um, They are very narrative-focused. The gameplay mechanics consist mostly of pointing at and clicking on things, Um, but they are interactive stories, and they were immersive, and they were sort of just the right thing at the right age for me to become very enamored by them. And then from there... um, Finding out that a couple of friends were also into these games and then sharing them with other people. And, you know, much in the same way that uh, certain friends and I can have an entire conversation, you know, almost exclusively with like Simpsons quotes or Star Wars references, um, you know, these games sort of uh, facilitated a kind of uh, shorthand and in jokes. So they've always been very um, near and dear to my heart. So when I pitched it to you, And Matt, I I put out a uh, list of titles, and I don't remember how we necessarily narrowed it down to this one. Do either of you recall why we we settled on Sam and Max?
2: I think what happened was uh, I... I kind of went back and forth with you a little bit and said, I don't want to play Indiana Jones because that's a familiar IP. And then after that, I was just like, uh, other than that, I don't have an opinion. And I said, I'll let Matt choose. And Matt kind of dodged the question. And we went back and forth a little bit dodging, picking one. And then you just said, all right, we're doing Sam and Max. I'm pretty sure that's how it went down.
1: Okay, that that makes sense. I did um, I did over last summer reread um, the comic books that, where where these characters came from. Um, so the, the quick backstory here is that the character Sam and Max were created by uh, a comic book artist named Steve Purcell in 87. He put out, um, I guess it was an independently released comic. Um, but he had done some stuff for Marvel. Um, he had done, uh, pencils on an issue of new mutants. Uh, I believe he did some alpha flight stuff. Um, but uh, because of this Sam and Max comic, the some of the guys at Lucas Arts, which is the computer game company that George Lucas started, um, really liked his style. So they brought him in as um, a concept artist and an animator working on some of their uh, late '80s adventure games. He did a lot of work, um, in particular on um, in Monkey Island, um, which are kind of are, are sort of revered as like among point-and-click adventure games, some of the best. Um, And then when they were looking for something new to do, um, everybody liked the characters Sam and Max, and they were putting Easter eggs into the game. They decided to um, build a game around them. Um, So based off of a couple of issues of his comic and then his experience taking road trips with his family as a kid, that's how we get Sam and Max hit the road. So, um, Matt, to reiterate, just because... Uh, you would have at least been old enough to, if this was on your radar, have played it. Were you familiar with any of these games or point-and-click adventure games in general? Uh, no. Uh,
0: a little. Uh, and, I, and I brought this up during our Doom episode because uh, you had mentioned point-and-click games as being favorite of yours when you were younger. And I think I had, I had played maybe some of Space Quest, Okay. Um. Yep. And Leisure Suit Larry. <laughs> yeah. Um. Which, uh, Jeff, if you're unfamiliar with Leisure Suit Larry, it's a. Oh, I'm familiar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So no, no more need be said. I guess. <laughs> I. Uh. Before we go any further, though, I I pulled up our conversation, so I figured we could fill everyone in because it's it's kind of funny. Um. But so t- Tony pitched the games, and Jeff said, "I'm honestly open to any of them. I'm familiar with." All of them, but never played any of them. Indiana Jones is the only IP of those that I have any affinity for, but I think I'd be more interested in playing something I know nothing about story wise. So Tony narrowed it down to Sam and Max Full Throttle or The Secret of Monkey Island. And then Jeff said, I'll let Matt give his thoughts. And I said, I mean, I do like monkeys. I love a good secret. And if loss is any indication, then Secret Islands are cool too. Let's do Sam and Max. <laughs> I don't remember
2: that being what happened, but that's
0: awesome. <laughs> I I think I really just picked it to make that joke. <laughs> Fair <laughs> that enough. sounds about right. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh,
1: don't be sorry. I think uh, it was probably the easier pill to swallow because um, as great as Monkey Island is, um, you and I would have had a difficult time because um, there's no way to get it on Mac currently. Um, with voice acting, um, which not to say that reading is bad, but, um, it definitely makes going back difficult, especially when you're talking about games that are so narrative and dialogue focused. Um, there were special editions of the first two Monkey Island games made. Um, but the, um, the Mac and the, um, the, uh, iPhone versions that were released are sort of, um stuck in some weird, like, copyright limbo since Disney bought Lucasfilm, um, and with it, LucasArts. Um, so since we're not playing on PCs, it would have been, um, we just would have had to go truly old school, and uh, Jeff would have been able to play with voice acting and updated graphics. But um, Sam & Max is still great, and I think of uh, of them, I don't know that it's my favorite, but for me, I think it was uh, and I didn't realize this really until I read through these comics and then replayed the game, uh, not just my sort of love for this kind of video game, but I think this game in particular had a, a larger influence on um, my sense of humor than I had uh, realized until I was an adult and could, could look back. Um, there are a lot of big words and a lot of sort of um, ironically detached uh, one-liners um and some moral ambiguity um the characters you play as are anti-heroes but they're not grim and gritty anti-heroes they're i mean one of them is kind of gleefully psychotic uh, and the other one just doesn't really seem to care too much one way or the other um so let's get into it what um what were your what are your sort of initial impressions as a whole and then we can kind of dig into um some specifics about playing through it and story stuff
0: Sure. Jeff, I'll actually let you go first, uh, but before you answer that specific question, have you ever played any point uh, point and click games? I actually have. Um, I think you had moved out of our house by this time,
2: but I remember playing Putt-Putt and Freddy the Fish, which are point and click adventures meant for uh, teaching kids basic numbers and uh, colors and stuff like that. But it's it's a point-and-click adventure. You're going from screen to screen, clicking on items, putting them in your inventory, bringing them somewhere else, using them. Um, so, I remember that. And then, on the Wii, they released a point-and-click Strong Bad game. Um, and I I remember playing that briefly. I didn't get very far into it. But that's about the extent of my experience. It was back when I was a kid, and then that brief stint was Strong Bad. Um, so coming into this and actually playing through it fully was kind of a a new experience. And yeah, it was a, it was kind of a rough one. I don't, I don't think it aged very well, if I'm going to be honest. And I think it's just the genre of point and click. I don't know if it's because I didn't really grow up with the original Art ones. So, Coming back to this very slow paced uh, style of game where you need to have a lot of patience um, was very tricky for me.
1: Well, um, I mean, to just to, to sort of like add some context there, um, it was really the advent of first person shooters and 3D graphics that kind of killed the market for these games. And it wasn't until the last 15 years or so through indie games and through guys like Tim Schafer and Double Fine sort of appealing to a niche audience who remembered and loved these games that they made any kind of comeback. And even then, it's very much um, sequestered to the indie game world. So things like Thimbleweed Park, uh, Kentucky Route Zero, um, these all kind of have their roots in point-and-click adventure games. But, um, I mean, you're not wrong. The the sort of... Um, tastes shifted and the market kind of turned its back on this type of game like around 97 98 or so
2: um i do like what the game is trying to do though even though i don't necessarily like how it felt doing it the idea of finding items and kind of mashing them together and solving mysteries and going from place to place and yeah puzzle solving your way through this bizarre story was really fun and with this game specifically, it was very funny. The, Sam and Max's characters are great. And the thing that pushed me through it were the interactions that they had with all the NPCs throughout the game. That's where this game truly shines is the writing. It was... I couldn't stop laughing at some of the things that they were saying. And it's the way they delivered it where Sam and Max are so casual about everything. And like you're saying, Max is basically a psychopath. But... The fact that he's very level he's a level-headed psychopath which i don't know if i've ever seen that archetype before but it was really interesting to see them interact with all the other characters and have back and forth with them and they would make fun of some of the npcs without the npcs realizing that they were being made fun of so that was the thing i enjoyed most about the game was just the writing and how much it made me laugh throughout the whole thing
1: hello this doesn't look like the lincoln tunnel sam Looks to me like a marginally-volatile hostage situation, Max. Ooh, does this mean we get to kick some puffy white mad scientist butt? Can't think of a reason not to. You'll be of no use, freelance police. With the flip of a lever, my ungrateful lunch date will be reduced to a half cup of disoriented atomic mat. I knew he wasn't a real doctor. Uh, Shall I confront, subdue and pummel the suspected perpetrator, Sam? Sick him up, little buddy. Oh. Hey, nice one. Yikes! Huh? He's not a real guy, Sam. Can I keep his head for a souvenir? Why do you suppose it's ticking? That's no head, Max. It's one damned ugly time bomb. Let's leave this criminal cesspool pronto. Good idea, Sam. Maybe we can ditch the head somewhere while the credits are running. Mind if I drive? Not if you don't mind me clawing at the dash and shrieking like a cheerleader. Sam, is pronto a real word? Goodbye, Sam and Max. I'll never forget all you've done here today. I will read some excerpts in my best Sam and Max voice to give an example of what we're talking about. Uh, Let's see. Um, What's a good one here? Um, So this is after the phone rings and uh, they're they're given the assignment that kicks off the game. Uh, Sam hangs up the phone so this is max starting the conversation another confused census taker actually it was the commissioner with another idiotic and baffling assignment does it involve wanton destruction we can only hope uh this is where they're at the world's largest ball of twine um and sam is reading from a plaque if laid out from end to end the twine would stretch from here to the far side of jupiter also scientists predict that by 2053 the sheer weight of the ball will push earth out of its orbit on a collision course with the sun Good thing my life expectancy is only six years. Way to take the short view, little buddy. (laughs) 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 Um, So, you know, like, as a sort of uh, nerdy, you know, 11 or 12-year-old with a very small group of friends who, uh, you know, also did not have many friends. Like, this made us feel smart. There was a lot of... (laughs) Uh, like just the, the dialogue and, and the, again, the delivery of it and the, the sort of general, um, uh, vaguely apathetic worldview was, um, it was, uh, it bolstered our, our sense of nerd superiority to other people. Matt, what was your experience playing through it or, or how did you feel overall? I know you were still playing it up until mere hours ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, okay. To start full disclosure When we recorded our last episode on Succession, I had finished the homework, as it were, about a week before we recorded the episode, and um, for that episode, we decided to only watch season one of Succession. Uh, And usually when I take notes, it's about, you know, bigger textural stuff, themes, character beats, music, filmmaking stuff, and I don't typically write any plot stuff down, so Going into that episode, I had intended to rewatch the finale of season one, and um, you know things got in the way, and we ended up recording, and I totally butchered the whole last episode, and Tony had to kind of jump in and rescue it, Um, my remembrance of the last episode. So going into this, knowing it was a narrative game, I was like, I want to put it off as long as possible so it's fresher in my memory, so I don't fuck it up. (laughs) Um, so that's why I kind of put it off. But then when I started it a few days ago, I quickly came to the realization that that was also a bad decision because, um, the game doesn't handhold you whatsoever. And there are so many different options and things to do. And really what you're supposed to do is just click on everything and interact with everything. Um, and so after a while I started getting really frustrated and scared um, that I wouldn't finish this game in time. So anytime I got to any particular spot where I was finding any like real insurmountable difficulties, um, I would just, you know, I would, I would look at guides in order to help me kind of make things a little easier. And then the last few hours of the game, I was, I just had to resort just to a guide in order to finish it in time for this episode.
2: I honestly can't see a world where someone can beat this without using a guide uh, nowadays. It's so difficult and everything is so... So my biggest problem with it was, with that regard, is modern games tend to have, say, You go to the carnival in this game right um and what a modern game would do would be every item that you need to progress the story would be somewhere located within that carnival uh but with this game you would explore the carnival and i don't know about you guys but i got stuck on the um the what the swan the tunnel of love uh for a very long time and they kept saying there's something in there we should go through it again so i would go through it again and i'd try to click on everything And I would just keep going and going. And eventually, I think it was Max said, we need a flashlight here. So I noticed that I have a flashlight and there's no bulb in it. So I was like, obviously, somewhere in this carnival, there has to be a bulb. Um, And I searched for, I don't know, maybe an hour. And eventually, like you, Matt, I just thought, I have to look this up. I cannot for the life of me find it. Turns out the bulb is back in the very room that you start the game in, in a corner that I just didn't happen to go click on. So... I just I feel like that's a very I don't know interesting choice. It kind of does the thing that games did back in the day where they made the game insanely difficult to artificially lengthen it because there was only so much disk space and storage space and cartridges and on discs and um what was this originally released probably I don't I might be reverse aging myself here but would have been on a floppy disk
1: <laughs> uh yeah, so this um. uh this this was released on yeah three and a half inch floppy disc and i think um if not at the same time then within a year the cd-rom version came out and the cd-rom is what had the voice acting um so this uh this was released in a a standard and a talkie edition um and you know i think um uh, I I can understand where you're coming from and agree to a point. There was, um, I think maybe a decade ago or so, I decided to replay a bunch of these and found them to be much harder than I remember. And a lot of that has to do with the way that video games had um, sort of trained my brain to expect different things and to, you know, have that introductory tutorial portion. And this doesn't have that. When I was texting Matt earlier while well, he was Uh, struggling to finish the game, I mentioned this was made when instruction manuals were still very important. Um, And they expected you to read it and like know what all the controls were. And I did my best to prep Matt, but I I think there were some things I was taking for granted. Um, But uh, yeah, when you're out of practice, and again, I played a lot of these kinds of games, I knew that um, before I leave any location that I'm visiting for the first time, I need to absolutely click on everything. I need to look at everything, I need to push everything, see what I can pick up, see who I can talk to. Um, and, and that's just sort of, uh, you know, a, a sort of a gameplay muscle that you don't need anymore. Um, and uh, Matt, you also had some technical difficulty where because of the way your computer was configured, you couldn't solve one of the puzzles, which I think, uh, in all honestly, gives you the full experience of playing one of these games because I remember, uh, you know, it was one of the one of the challenges was also <laughs> making sure that your machine was configured the right way to be able to play it at all. So you kind of got uh, a little bonus uh, extra credit there for <laughs> having to go through that.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, you had sent us instructions um, because there was, I guess... The only way to, to to get this on my computer was with an emulator.
1: Yeah, so I know, um, Jeff, you were able to buy a copy of this on Steam, um, uh, but the that version doesn't work with um, the new Mac OS. So we use Scum VM, which has, um, for maybe the last 15, maybe close to 20 years, been um, a way of emulating these old point-and-click adventure games. So as long as you have the original files, which uh, I have held on to all of my... Um, Lucas Arts and a few Sierra online CD-ROMs. Um, you can still play them on new machines, which are, you know, too powerful to play crappy old games now. Apparently, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, you sent us,
0: you sent me instructions to download the emulator and to start the game, and instructions on how to play the game. So when I started it up, the way my keyboard was configured, uh, a bunch of the things that you had, uh a bunch of your instructions just didn't work. Um, So I couldn't save the way you said to save. I couldn't call up all of the different commands um, the way you had mentioned it. So um, I just started kind of trying to figure things out on my own. So the first like hour and a half was possibly one of the most frustrating video game experiences I've ever had. Um, And... Uh, But I, I, you know, I knew that wasn't the game's fault necessarily. Um, So I finally started to get a bit of a hang of it. But I had, because I was kind of figuring things out as I was was going, I had missed so much shit from the very first, like the things that you find in the office and nearby. Uh, And I wasn't connecting anything. So I was just kind of aimlessly going to places. And I played that stupid fucking um, side game where you could drive and jump over signs what is um, the point of oh, that yep.
2: game? I have no idea what the purpose of that is.
1: <laughs> I can tell you what. So there's that. There's also a couple of like little mini games you can get at the convenience store. Um, and the idea was just they put them in there so that when you eventually hit a point where you're bashing your head against the wall because you can't solve a puzzle, um, instead of just walking away, you can do a like a mindless mini game that <laughs> has no point besides just like being a welcome distraction from everything else. I,
0: when I played that, so there's like that car one where you're, you're, um, you're Max, uh, and you're on top of the car and you're jumping over, um, like highway signs. And I was literally got to the point where I wasn't even watching the screen and I just kept clicking and I was do, looking at my phone and it just kept progressing to the next level. Um, and finally I died and I was just like, I, I, was I supposed to do that? Um, but then I went back and nope. then I started I started kind of picking up, uh, I, I did some research, I figured out some controls and then I started to enjoy it. Um, because like Jeff said, it's really funny uh, That and the interactions are great. And I do think even though it's crude uh, in its visuals, uh, I do like the style of it and I like the kind of world um, that they've kind of created, and the the side characters all look pretty cool. Um, the villains look great. The the Sasquatch or the Bigfoot looks great. The Yeti look great. Uh, it's it's like great character design. Um, mm-hmm. So um, that kind of got me through it. I, I Jeff, you had mentioned earlier that the game was. Um, Slower pace and kind of tries your patience. I think that's partly because you could be in in a you could be in one of the areas. Um, so essentially, for people listening, you have a map of, of the the United States, and it's like as you reveal places to go, it kind of pops up on the map, and you can kind of go to all these different places. And I think what happens is you're in a level, and you figure out what you need to do, and then you have to walk back to your car. And um, go to that other level and do that thing. So, if you've missed something, you kind of have to go back and do these things. And I think that's where it starts to try your patience a bit because you're not actively participating at that point because you could just click to the edge of the screen and wait as he walks across the screen. Uh, and I think that does get a little tedious after a while.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I certainly even felt that playing through this for the umpteenth time and I'd forgotten that. Uh, a different game has the ability to double click and then use like super fast walk to get wherever you clicked. Um, before we keep going too far and just so people understand why we're talking about carnivals and sasquatches, um, uh, the point, the, the plot of the game is uh, Sam and Max who are freelance police. Sam is a uh, anthropomorphic dog in a, a gray suit. Uh, Max is his sidekick who is a rabbit. Uh, you are assigned to go to the circus because um, the uh, the owners, two main attractions, a frozen Bigfoot and Trixie, the giraffe neck girl from Scranton, have gone missing. Um, and in your country-spanning search for them, you happen upon these ridiculous um, roadside attractions like the world's largest ball of twine or... Um, uh, a mini golf course, uh, that, uh, is overrun by alligators or, um, um, uh, in this world, the gator, uh,
0: the gator golf emporium.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, oh, there's a, um, the mystery vortex. That one's really cool. Yeah, it's really neat. There's, um, uh, a woman who sells vegetables that she grows to look like celebrities. <laughs> um, did, Matt, did you get the Beatles jokes in that one? Did you look at, at all the vegetables?
0: Uh, I did not at that point. I think I was just like, Oh shit. Am I going to finish this in time?
1: Yeah. There's one point where you look at, if you, you look at, um, just some vegetables that appear to be in the background and Max says, which one's the walrus? And Sam goes, I think it's a celery stock. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, more, uh, overall these games, you know, we keep talking about looking at and talking to things. Um, you know, these games grew out of the original text adventures where there was no graphics on the screen. It was just, you know, a description. You are in a room and the following objects are here and there's a door facing north and you would type in, uh, pick up snow globe or, um, open door. And then as computers got more advanced and graphics were introduced, that's where the point and click adventure came in. Um, so the, uh, The plot is pretty straightforward, though absurd.
0: I I, I did appreciate that about the game, uh, the story elements, because it pulls heavily from film noir, although it it never takes itself seriously. And even the arc of the story really adhered to a lot of um, film noir tropes. Like you are basically you go to get your case. And then when you're on your case, you discover it's bigger than you thought the case initially was, which is a pretty big um, standard kind of P.I. noir trope. Um, uh, it's it's bigger than you had possibly imagined. There's some double crossing in there or or you, you don't want to kind of betray um, the, you know, you do, so when you're going to look for Bigfoot, you know, you don't and you've discovered the reality of his situation. You don't want to betray him. And these are all things you see pop up a lot in film noir. And I thought that that was actually Mm -hmm. uh, pretty fun and pretty clever.
1: Yeah. Sam is conflicted. Max seems pretty okay with selling him out. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's like, when are we getting our money?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. There's a lot of film noir. um, And just that sort of, um, you know, I don't know if it's, it is kind of an ironic love for a lot of, like mid-century kitsch. Again, um, I I found this great, uh, old article with Steve Purcell who created the characters. Um, I think it was on PC gamer and I'll, I'll be sure to post that. Um, where he talks about, you know, just remembering going to these absurd, like dumb tourist traps on the side of the highway when he was a kid. Um, and it's, I mean, it sort of fits very nicely into that sort of, um, early to mid-90s uh, sort of ironic appreciation of of this kind of kitschy bullshit. Um, it it kind of has a nice overlap with, like, you know, um, John Schwarzwalder Simpsons episodes, I feel like, exist in a similar sort of humor spectrum to a lot of the stuff going on here.
0: Tony, when you were young and you played this for the first time, did you need help finishing this game? Like, was there, did that exist back then? where they are like
1: like magazines or something that you could order or (laughs) yes and no. So, uh, as I mentioned, I had, um, like three or four friends who we all really liked these games and, um, among us, you know, each one had a favorite. Um, so I remember like I'd be eating dinner with my family and the phone would just keep ringing and it'd be like this one kid who's like, I'm stuck on this thing. Tell me how to do it. Um, and we'd all do that. We would just hound each other for um, answers to puzzles when we were stuck. Um, I did have one friend who ended up racking up uh, a rather extravagant um, phone bill—not <laughs> uh, <laughs> for this game, but for uh, one of the Sierra Online point-and-click games. Because they, you know, they publish at the back of the manual. If, if you're stuck, call you know one nine hundred whatever. Um, and he just like just kept calling that hotline because he couldn't hmm. get through it. Uh, it was a lot easier once, um, you know, once we all had the internet, we could look things up. Um, the edition of Sam & Max that I own does have a, a hint guide that came with it. Um, but I also remember that um, prior to buying the the CD-ROM version with um, voice acting, I had the floppy version, which I don't think had the, um, the hint guide. Uh, so yeah, I mean... There were parts where we got stuck, but, uh, for me, you know, my memory is that a lot of the fun was solving it with friends. We'd play these games a lot together. Um, in particular, uh, full throttle was a game that my friend Ryan and I could, um, we got to a point where instead of saying, let's watch a movie, we would just play through full throttle and do it in like an hour and 45 minutes as if we were, were watching a movie. Um. So we we just would replay them constantly, and as we introduced them to somebody new, somebody new would eventually get stuck on something, and we'd either remember how to solve it or we wouldn't, and then that's when it became fun again. Jeff, um, you had mentioned that, you know, there
0: were some things that were frustrated about it, and you did like the story. Was there anything about the gameplay that you did like that you thought was interesting, that you wish you'd see in modern games? Uh... If I'm
2: gonna be honest, no.
0: <laughs> um,
2: it's the genre is such a specific, simple thing, um, and it was made at a time where they were trying to kind of they like this was before Wolfenstein and Doom, so like the technology for PC games weren't quite at the point where they could become fast paced and be doing uh quick motion things. So it had to be simple like this, and I definitely think we've gotten games have progressed to such a point where this style of game just doesn't work anymore if it was and like i was saying earlier the difficulty comes in it uh kind of being obscure and making you run around to all sorts of different places and kind of beat your head against the wall to find the solutions and i feel like game modern any modern game that tries to do that is instantly just kind of crapped on by everybody and uh claimed to not be a good game so um i don't know i couldn't yeah there was no really mechanics in here that i could definitely see working in any modern way just because the genre as a whole is pretty dead in the style that this was
1: yeah i think on the flip side though i do think a lot of modern games go way too far um and, and maybe uh hold your hand longer than they need to or you know worst case scenario hold your hand throughout the entire thing um and maybe it's because uh, I'm a little older and sort of, you know, have the experience of playing games like this under my belt. But when I'm, you know, 15, 20 hours into a game and it's telling me I need to do a thing and it's still putting a pin on the map and there's still, like, you know, a highlighted track to follow, like, that kind of shit drives me crazy because it doesn't, I don't feel like it gives you enough credit or thinks you're smart enough to figure it out. Um I think the best modern games find a happy balance where they front-load some of the hand-holding as they're explaining new mechanics and as you're getting a feel for the world. And they, um, you know, uh, eventually that'll that'll kind of fade away. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. How do you feel about games that are, you know, sort of like, you know, like the... uh, the meme of like a Navi character, like constantly chirping in your ear, telling you what to do. Um, do you think there's can be such a thing as too much handholding?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a problem that plagues a lot of modern games. And I think we're finally starting to get to a point where developers are getting away from that, which is very nice to finally see, but there was probably two decades of games where, uh, anytime you would do go to a new location like you said they'd put pins on your mini map and say go here here and here and talk to this person to progress the story um but there's a lot of modern games uh some of my favorites of all time like hollow knight and breath of the wild are games where you just they throw you in it and they say go for it and like take hollow knight as an example it's I think it's the perfect spot of you get a new ability in that game and you get stuck in a location and you can't get out of that location until you learn how to use this ability properly. And obviously uh, we just did an episode recently where we all played super Metroid for the first time. And Matt actually guessed it on that episode. And this was one of the first games I think where you saw that for the first time was the Metroid series. And I think that is perfect. Uh, game mechanic teaching where there isn't a sign and there's not a lot of text telling you how to use it and in what situations to use it a lot of the times in these games they'll give it to you there'll be a short blurb on what it is and then the world itself will teach you how to use that uh, as soon as you get it and then from there on out they just they don't bring it up ever again it's just you have this go use it make the best of it and i think that is the sweet spot for um Mm -hmm. doing that so i think there's a point between sam and max where it just throws you in with absolutely nothing and you kind of have to figure it out um as you go and definitely a lot of newer games where it's the whole way just kind of telling you go here do this go here do this go here do this
1: Mm
0: i i think that gets into a bigger conversation about what are what are we each personally looking for in a video game too because um while this game could be frustrating because it felt sometimes that um, some of the solutions were maybe arbitrary, I do think there are elements of Hollow Knight, which like Jeff, I, I also love quite a bit, that were really, really difficult. But it was difficult in different ways. And you could say like, well, that's what the game intended. But then you could turn around and say like, well, they intended this game to be Difficult as well, and that's why they made the mechanics this way. So then the waters get kind of muddy, you know, when yeah. you're just talking about video games in general. Uh, and we had this conversation when we were talking about the Super Metroid on your Super Metroid episode, uh, and how some of the mechanics were a little clunkier uh, than maybe what you're used to now. And I had maybe argued that that was part of the point for them, that that was their difficulty, but that wasn't the type of difficulty that you were looking for.
1: Yeah, and, and um. You know, beyond that, too, I mean, the objective, I think, of this type of game, and this game in particular, is, um, you know, to tell a story. I mean, the mechanics are not testing any type of um, skill or or uh, player evolution, you know, talking about Hollow Knight or Super Metroid or even something like Doom, games that depend on reflex and mastering um, button sequences and timing. Um, that's not here. This is just... Um, you know, uh, we're telling a story and we have these kind of logic puzzles. Uh, and yeah, some of them are kind of arbitrary. And I guess that's where the sort of um, the nuance of mechanics comes in is whether or not uh, the the breadcrumbs are all there or, you know, um, if maybe the magnifying glass is a little too hidden in the background or something like that.
0: Yeah, I think a version of this game could exist now, but just a little more streamlined, meaning that maybe the clues aren't always so obtuse and maybe, um, the traveling is a little easier and I still, and I think this game can work really well.
1: Yeah. I mean, to an extent it does. Uh, I mentioned a few contemporary games in particular, um, a game called Thimbleweed Park, which was, um, headed up by this guy named Ron Gilbert, who used to work at LucasArts and was the, um, the creator and, um, lead designer of monkey island um so it's got like the throwback uh graphics the same type of point and click interface um but that was made within the last five years um jeff have you ever played any of the telltale games
2: i have played episode one of the walking dead um they never really struck me which i guess is kind of uh part of why i think i didn't not necessarily didn't enjoy this game but it didn't really strike with me um but, I yeah, th- I feel like the Telltale games are kind of the modern versions of & Clicks. It's kind of what they evolved to become, and it took out almost all of the gameplay aspects, and it's all story.
1: Right, and that so Telltale Games was started by um, a bunch of former LucasArts employees after LucasArts, in uh, the early 2000s, they canceled a sequel to Sam and & Max, and they canceled the sequel to Full Throttle, and basically just decided to make star Wars stuff. So those employees started telltale. Um, all the telltale games are 3d. They did make, um, a number of episodic Sam and Max games at telltale. Um, but I, I played one of them and I, I really didn't like it. I think there was, um, you know, something about that transition to 3d controlling them with a, you know, a controller was weird. I played it on the Wii, which probably didn't help. Um, But also the transition into 3D didn't really work. Um, I think these characters in particular um, are sort of best in this comic book or Saturday morning cartoon kind of setting. Um, And it's unfortunate that when Telltale was getting started, it was all very much like, I don't know that there was an appreciation for how much work the art style in these older games did. Um, just because they could render Sam and Max in 3d doesn't necessarily mean they should have. And I think there was something lost in translation there.
0: I I, I thought there was something quirky about the way they moved and about the simplicity. Uh, and you could like see the pixels, like they had jagged edges and that kind of appealed to me. And that could also be like, uh, a little based in nostalgia of saying like, oh yeah, these type of games, um, but I thought it was kind of, I thought it was kind of interesting, uh, the look of it, and I do think that there are modern games that kind of, especially indie games, that are emulating that style. Oh, for sure. I don't necessarily have nostalgia for uh, that style of game, but I thought this looked
2: very slick. Uh, I liked the sprites and the animations that they did with them. I thought it worked and really helped with the comedy. Uh, Tony, you brought up the Saturday morning cartoon. So I think we've all agreed that the best part of this game was the writing. So I was very curious to see what other mediums Sam and Max have been in. And I found the cartoon and I watched the first episode of the cartoon. And I didn't think it worked as well as the characters in the game. I think they and I only watched one episode so I don't know if this changes or gets better as it goes but I felt like Sam and Max were too wacky in the cartoon and not as subdued and calm but rude and passive-aggressive as they were in the the game so I'm sure you've watched plenty of the cartoon what are your thoughts on it
1: Uh, I actually don't have much of a memory of the cartoon besides that yeah I think the trade-off, because it was like a Fox Saturday morning cartoon. Um, so I think they kind of sanded down some edges and made it a little sillier for kids. Um, and, I, you know, I don't, I just remember that being my impression. I don't remember if it was a good or a bad thing. Um, but besides that, uh, yeah, it's been uh, the original comic books that were done. Um, he did these really great color one-page comics with them in LucasArts' quarterly catalog that would come with games. And normally, like, whatever the next big game coming out from the company, it would sort of be themed around that. So, like, when they put out Dark Forces, which was um, a Star Wars Doom clone, essentially, um, you know, there's a Sam and Max cartoon where they accidentally blow up the Death Star because they light a match in the trash compactor. Or um, (laughs) um, uh, LucasArts made a, a, a Western... Uh, first-person shooter called Outlaws. So, the, of course, they did a Sam and Max like um, spaghetti western kind of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, outside of that, the game from Lucas Arts and Telltale um, and the cartoon—they haven't been in much else. Um, Steve Purcell has had a very interesting post-Sam and Max career. Um, he is currently working at Pixar as part of their story department. Uh, he's done a lot of character design and writing uh, within the Cars series. He's actually one of the Oscar-winning co-directors of Brave, um, and most recently he worked on Toy Story 4, and it was the voice of the creepy ventriloquist dummies. Oh, cool! If if you know um, if you know his work from Sam and Max, you can kind of see um, like there's one particular character he designed for. Um, I think it was like a Halloween short set in the cars series they were like, there's this big gnarly, like evil construction equipment truck. Um, and it looks like one of the absurd things that would would have existed in Sam and Mac. So it's, it's kind of fun to see this guy who, you know, for, you know, I, 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 I always knew his name, um, but just through these characters, but kind of seeing the little um, traces of, Um, you know, that spark that makes Sam and Max so interesting to look at and um, gives them so much of their personality um, show up in in Pixar stuff. It's been kind of cool.
0: So we've talked about the humor in the game, but we haven't mentioned um, that there's a lot of pop culture references and it takes advantage of being owned by Lucasfilm. And there's a number of Indiana Jones and Star Wars references. Uh, There's a moment where you, you're going to take a, you're, um, Sam is going to take a wig off of uh, like a, a mannequin head, uh, and it's like you know the Raiders of the Lost Ark scene where Indy is kind of trying to steal the idol and balance it out with a uh, replace it with a bag filled with sand, uh, and then there's another moment where you are. Get in touch with a you hit a little robot and then it kind of projects a little mini Princess Leia and stuff. So I didn't expect there to be so many sort of pop culture references, but obviously being owned by a Lucasfilm, I was like, well, you know, it makes sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a fisherman you run into who is basically Woody Allen, um, who eventually uh, gets hit by a giant plaster fish and uh, drowns and drifts away down the river. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I think the, you know, one of the, um, the biggest recurring, um, pop culture references, it's a few rolled up in one, but the, the main bad guy is a, um, a British, uh, country Western singer named Conroy Bumpus. So he kind of, he kind of has like a John Lennon speaking voice. Um, but he is this, um, you know, he has this oversized ego. He has, um, in a state called Bumpusville that you go to, which is kind of like a weird Graceland slash sideshow because it turns out that he's kidnapped, um, Bruno, the Bigfoot and Trixie to put them in this, um, you know, menagerie of singing creatures he's assembling. Um, he also has a flunky named Lee Harvey, which is one of several, (laughs) um, tongue in cheek references to the Kennedy assassination. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure, um, so again, some of the vegetables, uh, at the vegetable stand, uh, were shaped like, uh, key figures from, um, you know, the assassination and the conspiracy theory around it and everything like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the game, the game gets pretty weird too. And just like, um, where like, there's a moment, there's a moment where you have to combine a bunch of your, Items, so you have like a jumpsuit, and you put tar on it, and then you put Yeti fur on it, and then you put on a wig, and then you wear it uh, to to disguise yourself as a Yeti, and it's a ridiculous visual, but it's really funny. But basically, uh, Max is standing on Sam's shoulders, and they put it the the costume on top of them so they could kind of sneak into this um, venue where there's like a kind of like a Yeti um meeting and they're kind of like talking about their the yeti history and it's all really silly and but weird uh but it's funny because they trap the bad guys in like this sort of like a like a uh like a walk-in freezer and then they pull them out uh and they're frozen in like an ice cube and then they dress that in the yeti costume <laughs> it's it's all really silly and but pretty funny and and I, I found all that stuff to be really charming and uh without like jeff has said uh, i i think the writing is just really clever and and it and it made this a, an enjoyable experience
1: yeah i think the best of these games had really solid writing and were really fun to spend time with the characters um this one didn't have any puzzles like this, but um, Full Throttle notoriously had a puzzle that, um, you know, the cliche within Adventure Games was uh, to call it a pixel hunt, where you had to click on a very, very precise, literally a pixel that is not clearly identified. Um, and, and I think at the at its worst, this genre can be really frustrating, and the puzzles can seem kind of arbitrary. Um, you know, kind of if uh, from a, a high level looking down, you know, combining a golf ball retriever with a severed hand and then putting a magnet in it does not seem like a logical thing to do. But again, <laughs> this is a, like a bizarre kind of Saturday morning cartoon world. So if you're thinking like, oh, okay, I'm in a world where I'm playing as a talking dog with a talking rabbit sidekick, um, things can get a little crazy. When you get into a game like Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, I don't remember puzzles being that absurd because there's a kind of logic that each of these games establishes pretty quickly as long as you know what kind of world you're in you can within reason um you know allow yourself to think uh, uh to a certain extent outside the box to to get through it but um yeah i mean the writing here is great all the LucasArts arts games had really really solid writing um which again i think more than anything else what kept me and my friends coming back to them and you know uh more than 20 years later has me still replaying a lot of these games. Um, Jeff, do you think you would have any interest in playing any other game like this? Um, I
2: probably wouldn't want to play through it, but I would gladly watch playthroughs on YouTube just to kind of get a sense of the comedy of it if they're all written this well. But I don't know if I could bring myself to, uh, play through the game myself because I think the puzzle solving can be so obtuse and frustrating at times that it would take away. I would get more enjoyment from just watching it uh, than I would from playing it because I'd be so frustrated playing it that I think I wouldn't enjoy uh, the writing as much. Does that make sense?
1: Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there are plenty of playthroughs on YouTube where you can, like I said, sit through it in the time it would take to watch a movie. Um, Matt, what about you? Same question.
0: Yeah, by the end even though because I was you know, racing to the finish line, I was following a guide, I still kind of got some enjoyment out of it. You'd think like kind of going step by step in the last like hour of it or so that it would just kind of, there'd be a disconnect. But I was actually kind of like at that point, like it's not so bad kind of following instructions and then just kind of, you know, almost putting the bookshelf together as it were. And I thought the ending was mm-hmm. really pretty left field and strange and, and endearing in a lot of ways. Um, it was sure. just really weird because basically um, the Yetis win uh, and uh, sort of there's also this sort of pointed um, attack on consumerism and then on, on American culture at, you know, obviously the time that this had come out, um, which I didn't expect from a game like this. I just thought it to all be just kind of like, sort of cynical wisecracking kind of stuff um Mm -hmm. and that that was a little more um there's a little more specificity to its jabs at the end than I was really anticipating even while it was still being really strange and funny uh so I did enjoy that um yeah I do think I want to play different versions of what this type of thing is and you had mentioned um Kentucky Route Zero, which I hear great things about. So I, I do want to seek that out. And that's sort of like a modern version of this. And I hear that game mm-hmm. is really interesting and weird and and um, unique. Uh, and I've also had on my list for a long time uh, a game called Night in the Woods, which I hear is also supposed to be a pretty cool indie game about depression. Uh, and you play like as a a, a cat, I guess. Um And it looks cool, it's got a great aesthetic. Uh, It looks like an animated kind of um, video game style. So yeah, I don't know about the old games. I mean, playing this makes me sort of want to dip my toe back into like Space Quest um, Mm -hmm. to see what that's like. Cause those games were pretty fun. I remember enjoying them, but I'm sure if I played it now it might, I might be like, oh yeah, I remember this. Um, sort of in the same way you watch, like I watch old episodes of transformers and you're like, yeah, this is terrible, but I enjoy it, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, well I do have, um, two recommendations. Um, Jeff, you can watch playthroughs on YouTube, Matt, if you're interested, you can play through these. Um, so the first is both of these are adventure games. Uh, the first is the last great one that LucasArts put out, and it's called Grim Fandango. Uh, this was the first adventure game they did in 3D, so there's no pointing and clicking. You are controlling the character with the keyboard. Um, but they recently made an HD remaster of it that I think is on Switch, certainly on um, PC and PlayStation 4. Um, but if you like the noir elements in Sam and Max, uh, Matt, this is... Um, imagine a film noir set in uh, the Pixar movie Coco. So oh, this cool. movie, this game this game takes place in sort of the traditional well not traditional but like this this uh, version of the traditional Mexican land of the dead. And the main character you play as is a um, a lost soul named Manny Calavera who, because of his sins, has to work off his debt to the universe as a travel agent in the afterlife. Um, and it turns out that a woman who should be given like an express ticket to paradise, um, is cheated out of that. So this game is your years long journey to find her, um, and sort of out of your debt to the universe, make sure that this one good person gets the, uh, the end they truly deserve. Uh, but it's, it's wonderful. And like the art style is really good. And like a lot of LucasArts games, the, the writing is great. The, um, The the voice acting is excellent. Um, The other one is a game by Sierra Online who made Space Quest and Leisure Suit Larry. And this game is called Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers. And you play as uh, a struggling writer in New Orleans named Gabriel Knight. And there has been a string of recent um, voodoo-inspired murders. And you are researching uh, this serial killing to work on a new book. Uh, but then it turns out that there is actually some sort of um, uh, evil magic going on and you learn all these uh, secrets of your own family history. Um, it's very serious and grown up and I probably played it too young, but after playing a handful of LucasArts games and then playing this at a friend's house and realizing, oh, like this can this isn't just telling like fun cartoony stories or like Indiana Jones adventures, like this can video games can be some really grown up stuff. Um, and it it was kind of a, a a pivotal game experience. Uh, but again, the cast is great. Tim Curry plays a main character. Mark Hamill plays, um, a detective. Um, Leah Remini is in it. Um, uh, Michael Dorn, who played Worf in Star Trek. I mean, you know, these game, these types of games were popular enough that the bigger studios could get some like real, like actual actors to participate which um you know makes it seem a little more legit than um games that maybe couldn't spring for uh name brand actors cool
0: that's not those both sound really interesting jeff do you have any recommendations i do
2: i have one um so tony you had brought up games modern games such as thimbleweed park and uh night in the woods matt you had brought up and this kind of falls in that category it came out ooh, maybe close to seven or so years ago it's called oxen free and i think it's kind of ooh. what what the point and click adventure games evolved into have you played it tony
1: uh i've played some of it actually um it, it's funny because i have it and sandra and i played it one night and got super into it um but then she got a little freaked out and wasn't sure that she wanted to keep playing it. And I, I haven't looped back yet. But, yeah, it's really good.
2: Yeah, Matt, I think you would really dig it. So, basically, you're this teenage girl named Alex, and you have this new stepbrother. And you and him and a bunch of your friends go to this deserted uh, island where they're, I think it, it's like a, there's some sort of science facility there. But you go there, and all this weird paranormal stuff starts to happen. And you have weird interactions with ghosts and there's time loops and it gets really freaky and spooky and i think you would really dig it man
0: where where can i play that that's on switch oh cool
2: and i think it's like 10 bucks it's real cheap and you can play through it in four or so hours um alice and my wife played it and she really liked it um and it's a similar thing to kind of sam and max where it's very story-based there's no mechanically intensive things i think the most mechanically intense thing that you do is you tune a radio um mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're just kind of walking through uh, the island while having conversations with people and you get different dialogue options and that kind of affects how the story plays out. And there's a bunch of different endings based on how you kind of talk your way through things. It's really fun.
0: It's funny, we didn't bring this up, but one thing that um, Sam and Max sort of reminded me of uh, and, and I think you had posted a picture of this recently, Tony, um, was choose your own adventure games. And granted, there isn't a lot of different outcomes in Sam and Max, but it still felt like that in a way where you're sort of, you know, go to a scene and you talk to this person and you choose which thing to talk to them and you have to choose other th- you know which item to present to them etc etc so it didn't necessarily have multiple outcomes like a choose your own adventure but it still felt in style similar to those type of things and i used to love those when i was a kid
1: yeah and actually i meant to mention that earlier because my wife and i just yeah we just read through one together it was a lot of fun i don't know that i ever actually read one as a kid i knew of them but um it was my first time reading one yeah
0: i had tons of them when i was young i love them i um because they came in all different genres. Uh, and I gravitated towards like the horror and science fiction type stuff. But um, so, for my recommendation, uh, Tony, you actually mentioned him earlier in the episode. Um, uh, and that's John Sch- Schwarzwelder. Uh, and he is, in addition to being a, a Simpsons writer, has written uh, a series of books uh, starring this character called Frank Burley, who's a detective. Uh, and they're all pretty great. I'm going to recommend um, The Time Machine Did It. Uh, basically, Frank Burley is this uh, PI, um, and but he's he's a bumbling idiot. Uh, so it reminded me a lot of Sam and Max and its tone and its humor. Uh, and The Time Machine Did It. Basically, um, he's responsible for all the problems and their massive time machine paradox creating problems uh and they're all his fault because he's kind of an idiot but then he ends up sort of solving it but mostly because he's still an idiot and he just bumbles into things but it's really really funny um so yeah i check check out any of the frank burley series or any of his um john Schwartzwelder's books uh
1: that's funny you mentioned that because i i was recently thinking i am long overdue to read those and was going to see if you wanted to do an episode so oh we totally
0: should there there's so many of them and the time machine did is great and like i'd love to read more so i think that that would make a great episode yeah So, Jeff, tell everyone where you could uh, find you and your podcast. All right. Sure. Uh,
2: You can find us. We are the Game Sharks Podcast. We're on Spotify. We're on Google Play. We're on Apple Podcasts. So, come over there if you want to listen to a video game or or a podcast or a bunch of guys just talk about video games, new releases, old games that we're visiting for the first time, new stuff. We kind of talk about it all. Uh, We have an Instagram you can check out with where uh, my wife post pictures of whatever is relevant about what we're talking about that week uh i think that's game sharks podcast on instagram and yeah come give us a listen and uh that's about
0: all i got <laughs> thanks for coming on the show jeff thanks for having me it was a blast
1: yeah when uh earlier or um not too long ago i checked in with matt to see if he had started yet and see where you were at and, um he mentioned Yeah, Jeff's playing it. He says all you do is click on stuff and I was nervous and my only hope was that if you didn't like the way the game played, at least you appreciated the other stuff, and you did. And I'm glad I'm glad that you thought it was funny because I don't know how I would have handled it if you guys didn't like
2: this. (laughs) If I showed up and was like, I hate everything
0: about this game.
1: Yep. (laughs) So
0: Tony, we can't really we don't really know what's coming up after this.
1: No, we do not. This is the last recording we are doing before um, my uh, my wife's twins arrive. Our twins, I suppose. Um, I should take some credit, <laughs> not for the hard part, but for contributing some. Yeah. At least, at, le-
0: at least, at least an eighth. Sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So w- we're uh, we're we're really like on high alert at this point. So. Um, yeah, I, next episode could be anything, but um, I I will certainly be um, a lot more tired when we record that one. Um, but yeah, keep keep an eye out on our uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that. Uh, I'm sure we'll plug whatever's coming next. Sure.
0: We're not going to take a hiatus. We're going to continue. This episode isn't going up till June, and we're recording this in March, so we have some time and we have some wiggle room. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so look... Uh, once you hear this, I'm sure we'll have announced upcoming episodes, and we plan on having a bunch of guests guests on to help lighten Tony's load, uh, and who knows, maybe eventually um, the twins will come on the show.
1: Yes, um, they might be stacked on top of each other in a Sasquatch hair-covered trench coat, but uh, they'll be there. It's
0: perfect, because yeah, they've missed getting- everything up until this point.
1: Mm-hmm. We'll
0: fill them in on everything, yeah, for sure. Yeah, as much as we possibly can, uh, and we're gonna start with cats. The the uh, hopefully the butthole cut. Release the butthole cut, dudes. Re- yeah, release the butthole cut. Thanks again, Jeff, <laughs> uh, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Uh, Thanks, enjoy Jeff. your
1: night, you misanthropes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Did We Miss, and you can find previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And thanks as always to the What's Your Writers Club in downtown Providence for hosting us. You can follow them on Instagram and Twitter at What's Your Club, and you can get more information about what they do on their website at whatcheerclub.org.